Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. So there's TS. Jesus Christ. Sorry. <laughs> Are you quite ready? Actually, yes. are we recording? Just use that. <laughs> Seriously. You people wanted better mics, and now you're going to get it. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the sensitive compartmented Kushner edition. <laughs> <laughs> Just sounds dirty. It's. <laughs> I mean, it can't be more ridiculous than the reality. It already is, right? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I'm Shane Harris. I have uh, SCK clearance. Sure. A CK? Sensitive compartment at Kushner. Oh, okay. I've actually been asked by a number of people in my career as a journalist, like people in the intelligence community being like, you don't have a clearance, right? I'm like, do you know how this works? <laughs> like, no, I don't. But let's pretend we <laughs> Shane's do. Shane's all of his articles. Well, right. Jared is entitled to exactly the same security clearance as you are. Dad, apparently so. Exactly. Why? What does your dad do? <laughs> <laughs> he got me a clearance for Christmas. I'm here in the new drum studio with my friends Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. Tammy is away again. Is she off getting a, a full-scope background investigation? No, she is in Iraq. Ooh, nice. Oh, okay. <laughs> no additional context, nothing, just... Not what I was expecting to hear, but... Well, I think we will let Tammy describe uh, that when she gets back. Okay. Well, we will look forward to that. On the podcast this week, why does senior White House advisor Jared Kushner have a security clearance? And I don't. President Trump comes back from a summit meeting with Kim Jong-un empty-handed, and the NSA has stopped a controversial surveillance program that collected Americans' phone records. Um, so let's start with the, the the Kushner story, just to catch everyone up, because a lot of this broke just after we recorded last week. But the New York Times reported, and then the Washington Post confirmed that uh, Jared Kushner did obtain a top secret security clearance last May, but only after his father-in-law, President Trump, instructed the chief of staff John Kelly to give him one. The backstory of this is that for basically much of the first year in his first year in the White House. Jared Kushner was operating, as we've discussed before, under a provisional or an interim top secret clearance that also had what are called sensitive compartmented information accesses, so kind of information above top secret. So you had the top secret, which is sort of the basic thing you need to work in the White House, and then SCI accesses to some degree. Um, John Kelly in February of 2018 said enough is enough to all of this. we got too many people in this White House with interim clearances, and basically if you've had one for a year or more, we're pulling it. So that downgraded Jared to a secret. Then the president steps in and he goes back up to top secret, but we think not with SCI clearances. So, Susan, let's just start <laughs> to establish for everyone. Um, this is totally normally the way security clearances are handled in the White House, right? Sure. They're given out like party favors yeah. to people that <laughs> the president likes and or has married his children. Right. Uh, so let's talk it's about – It's actually a part of Ivanka's dowry. 
Oh, that, that came with know, it. Yeah, you. I mean, it really is kind of heartwarming. <laughs> I feel like my dad would actively not give my husband a security clearance if given uh, that authority over him. So really, it's nice that the Trumps are so uh, – what a nice in-law. I think, right. when you know, it's part of the – you know, if you if you date one of the children, you – this is part of your incentive to actually marry, you know? <laughs> Um, so clearly, this is not the way things are normally done. But Susan, you've had a lot of things to say that I, went, I just want to start with that I think are very on point about, um, <clears throat> you know, that we're not seeing a lot of pushback or questioning from Republicans in Congress about this. Uh, that's an interesting point. Why, why, why are we seeing this and why is that notable that we're not? So I'm hoping that the answer is we're not seeing it yet um, and that we will see a lot more in the coming days and weeks. This is one of the areas in which the intensive focus on the president, like on the legal questions surrounding the president, really falls short. So the president has the ability to give his son-in-law a clearance. There's no legal question about whether or not he can do that. There's no legal question about whether or not he can overrule the intelligence community, the FBI, his own White House counsel, his own chief of staff. He can. And so the question becomes, should he, right? And what should the consequences be when the president behaves in a legal but transgressive fashion, right? The lawful but awful. So I think we need to take a step back and think about what has happened here. The incentives of the individuals, and there are likely multiple agencies involved, in part because each agency is essentially responsible for those compartments that are relevant to the intelligence produced by their agencies. So CIA gives you access to the human compartment, NSA to the SIGIN compartment, roughly speaking. Right. Like generally speaking, right? So we have a lot of different – there's a lot of different equities. Everyone here understands that Jared Kushner is the president's son-in-law. Everyone here understands that Jared Kushner is a senior White House advisor with an incredibly sensitive Middle East portfolio. The Everybody gets that the message is that Jared Kushner is supposed to get his security clearance and that if Jared Kushner does not get his security clearance, there are going to be serious consequences. And yet, even against that backdrop, at every single level, we have people flagging serious problems. And what we are seeing here that the CIA is objecting, that the FBI is concerned. What we're seeing is a process of elevation. So this isn't just about Jared not filling out his forms correctly the first time, right? That's a separate issue that it took him so many times to actually put full disclosure on his SF-86. I would suggest that somebody else who made that many mistakes on their forms would have a separate uh, sort of false statements issue on their hands. But putting that aside, this is not about process. They are seeing something substantive in Jared Kushner's background that is causing them to be concerned. And they're elevating that up each step of the way. And at each step of the process, the person who is evaluating it is saying, I don't think this guy should have a clearance. And in really, really unusual cases, it moves all the way up to the White House counsel's office, right? So this means that we sort of elevated it really to the top of the chain to the point where it usually goes. And that just rarely ever happens if you have to go to it's the White House counsel for It's incredibly rare that the White House counsel would ever be involved, but they are sort of in the ordinary course of events, sort of the ultimate decision maker. Don McGahn, who is Donald Trump's White House counsel, and John Kelly, who is Donald Trump's chief of staff, 
These are not people who hate the Trumps. These are not the deep state petty vendetta against them. Not that you know of. (laughs) Maybe that's who wrote the op-ed, right? These are people who are on the president's team, are looking at this information and saying, we don't believe Jared Kushner should have a security clearance. That means that what they're looking at is disturbing and scary and suggests that there is either some serious indication of a reason to be concerned about compromise or some serious indication that there's a reason to be concerned about this individual's judgment. Now, this is not an individual, some random person in an agency that's seeing some small piece of a compartment, which is itself incredibly you know, important to protect and significant. This is somebody who, according to news reports, is getting the president's daily briefing every single day that is in a tremendous number of incredibly sensitive meetings all the time and is engaged in precisely the kind of conversation and diplomacy with foreign allies and adversaries in which judgment and discretion and being in a position in which you have no compromises whatsoever, personal, professional, or financial, is incredibly important because these are the situations in which we have to trust people to not provide information that is going to be to the detriment of this country. And so I really think we need to understand that whatever the underlying thing is here, it's really, really bad. And to see this on the front on the front page of the New York Times or wherever it ultimately appeared, this is Don McGahn and John Kelly and others raising the loudest possible alarm. And it's coming against a backdrop in which we've seen so much smoke about Kushner's inappropriate relationships with the Saudis, about Kushner's inappropriate financial and financial dealings and potential compromises there, about his lack of experience, about his lack of judgment. And so this really is an area in which this should be viewed as kind of a national security emergency for somebody who in very, very real ways has access to the crown jewels of intelligence information, stuff that is sensitive and has real consequences when it's disclosed. And the president basically stepping in and saying, you know, I, I like the guy and he's my son-in-law and so I don't care. I'm going to sort of – I'm going to ignore all these concerns. And that's why it's so worrisome to not see Congress as an independent branch sort of asserting itself and saying, wait a minute, if there's a a risk to the security of the United States of America, we need to, one, understand the nature of that risk on a substantive level, and two, understand whether or not there was a corrupt process here. Even if it was legal, even if the Constitution vests the authority in the president, the Constitution also has the president swear an oath. And if he is allowing an individual who is not safe to have access to information that is consequential in very real ways to people's lives, that's a violation of his oath of office. And, and I do think Congress is, is duty-bound and is constitutionally bound to get to the bottom of it. And so I, I'm surprised that we haven't seen more by now. Yeah, but Ben, that seems to me more of the, the point, right? There's there's political hypocrisy all the time and we could go back and count the number of times that Donald Trump 
said that Hillary Clinton should be locked up because she ignored classification rules and used a private email server. And here he is overruling security professionals and giving a security clearance to someone. But it does strike me that, you know, Susan called it this sort of lawful but awful. What reason could he possibly have to overrule this many people? And particularly since we know uh, that he does not have SCI clearances today, that means that the CIA at least continues, despite the president's order, to give a top secret clearance to Jared Kushner to continue to say, yeah, but we're not giving him access to the stuff that we produce, which could include many things that are in the PDB. But keep in mind, Trump is in a position to to overrule that on an ad hoc basis ad if he wants basis, to. So right. it doesn't mean that Jared isn't getting access to this information. It just means that the CIA continues to raise concerns Well, it about does mean it. that he can't go into those compartments on his own. He has to wait for that information to sort of wash into the White House via reports. But yes, take your point. Effectively, he's seeing a lot of stuff that probably the CIA would rather he not. So a couple things. First of all, I think the answer to your question, Shane, is that there is almost no conceivable reason uh, that the president would reasonably overrule basically the considered judgments of everybody. That said, uh, as Susan started with, he unquestionably has the authority to do it. In fact, the definition of classified information at its purest essence is information that for national security reasons, the president wants to protect and wants to control access to. I mean, everything else is just implementation of that idea, right, through executive order. Um, but that's the definition of classified material. And so if the president wants to share it with somebody, he is entitled to share it with somebody. And we are collectively entitled to judge him for sharing it with that, with that person or making that judgment. Now. A couple of other things. When Susan says that Congress needs to push back on this, it's a very interesting question to me what Congress can reasonably do here. Because if you look at, you know, almost all of what you would, the documents you would want here are reasonably covered by executive privilege. That is, any communications between Don McGahn and the president, between Kelly and the president. The only thing I think you could probably get as Congress is some material about the underlying adjudication and what the concerns were. Um, but I think you're going to actually run into a pretty substantial executive privilege problem pretty quickly and that the executive will actually have, in contrast to some other areas, a pretty good argument. And so they will actually be able to gum this up. And so my suspicion is that Congress's leverage here does not come from investigative clout. It comes from, you know, Nancy Pelosi or Steny Hoyer communicating very clearly to the White House, you are getting none of X, Y, and Z that you think are priorities unless we have satisfaction on this. And that it actually comes from something a little bit more akin to, you know, the the sort of shutdown fight than it does from something like a, you know, issuing subpoenas or uh, and so I think it's a really delicate and interesting question. How, if you're the legislature, do you pursue what Susan is describing? Uh, that said, I very much agree that it is, it, it's an egregious situation. 
And it reminds me in a lot of ways a lot of the Comey firing situation where the defense of it was, well, you know, come on, Article 2, he has the power to fire the FBI director. And you're like, no one's questioning the raw power to do it. People are questioning the propriety of the action given that he has the power to do it and it reflects an egregious misbehavior within the confines of his actual powers. And Susan, just to – you're going to make a point too, but just to linger on something else you said too. I mean you made the point that everybody in the room sort of gets that this is the president's son-in-law and he needs to have the clearance and there is this enormous pressure clearly that was being brought to bear on it. But this isn't just the CIA digging in its heels and saying, we don't like Jared Kushner. There is something articulable that is being that is coming up in these investigations that is preventing him from or was preventing him from getting to clearance. That's that's serious. This isn't somebody playing politics and it's not, you know, Gina Haspel trying to be obstinate. Uh, uh, this is a, a real concern that he, Jared Kushner, could – I mean, wittingly or otherwise, mishandle extremely sensitive information. That's why you don't get a clearance, among other reasons. So we don't know. There is every indication that there is something very, very serious, substantive underlying this. Like a thing, not just accumulation of things. Right, that this is not just a concern about processes and how he filled out his forms, that there's some kind of concern here. And again, we've heard this a lot of times. We've heard that he was given defensive briefings in the transition period. We've heard that the FBI potentially raised concerns about he and his wife's relationship with Wendy Murdoch. We've heard plenty of reporting about concerns related to his relationship with Mohammed bin Salman, speculation about whether or not he might have pass the names of individuals to the Saudis. The the smoke here is all substantive in nature. We don't know the underlying information. We shouldn't know the underlying information because it certainly touches on sensitive sources and methods issues. HIPSI on the SSCI has to get to the bottom of the underlying information. They have an obligation to do so. This isn't like an optional oversight matter as far as I'm concerned. This goes to the core of the oversight function. This goes to the core of the oversight function, right? This really is about like defending the United States. And so uh, I do think that that information is is actually more important than the process information. I agree with Ben that it would be sort of difficult to get into what precisely did the president do and what did the process look like. But that core underlying information is the important thing. And – This is about political pressure because anytime the president does something lawful but awful, the answer is it's politically unacceptable and it's politically intolerable. And so the nation demands that it come to an end or it exerts its political pressure on Congress and it exerts political pressure in the next election. We know the Trump administration is aware of and afraid of the political consequences here because they lied about it. We know that the president knew it was improper to have his children in government because he lied and promised they wouldn't be in government. We know that the president knows it's wrong to allow his children to have special rules while they're in government because he lied and said that his children wouldn't have special rules while they were in government, that they were going to have to follow the processes. And yet they haven't divested in important ways. They aren't following the ordinary security clearance process. This stuff has real consequences, and the only way it's going to stop is if the American people decide to care about it. And so the role of oversight here is 
keeping the issue in the headlines and producing enough information so that the American people can understand what exactly is going on here in order to exert the, the political pressure of saying this is, this is unacceptable. We have obligations to each other. We have obligations to the people who undertake risk on behalf of this nation, Americans and others. And so we need – this is not acceptable to us. And if the president doesn't change it, then we're going to vote him out of office. Or, we're, or if our Republican member of Congress doesn't hold him accountable or our Democratic member of Congress doesn't hold him accountable, we're going to vote them out of office, right? That's the whole idea of the structure. But you need information to be produced for that, for that constitutional structure and that constitutional mechanism to work. And so that's the role that oversight has to play now. Ben. So as – uh, some readers may remember Susan and I have been working on a book about the sort of norms that Trump is violating in the presidency and the Trump kind of challenge to the traditional presidency. And when I read about this episode, I was immediately reminded of a letter that I had come across uh, from George Washington uh, that represents the extreme counterexample um, which is that in February of 19, uh, 1797, uh, Washington grew concerned about the uh, fate of a particular diplomat who was working for the United States. And the reason he was concerned was because that diplomat whom he regarded as the most talented diplomat the United States had happened to be the son of his successor, uh, who was now President John Adams. And so the former president writes the current president a letter and says, look, I know he's your son, but don't discriminate against John Quincy Adams because he's the most talented person in our diplomatic corps. And the letter is exactly the opposite of this situation. It's how the traditional presidency understands this kind of thing, that it's, you know, it's the job of George Washington to say to John Adams, Please, you know, when you make these judgments, don't discriminate against your son. And of course, John Quincy Adams goes on to be president of the United States himself. And so, you know, just just a reminder of how extremely divergent this stuff it is from actual our actual tradition. And Jared Kushner is basically the opposite of John Quincy Adams <laughs> as a human being. So it really ties it all together. Well, somebody else who does not have a top secret security clearance, Kim Jong-un, he would have a hard time getting one, I think. <laughs> would he, though? <laughs> no, Actually, he has fewer foreign contacts than Jared besides, Kushner. besides, he sends the president love letters. You he know? does. <laughs> I mean, he hasn't traveled widely. Um, he doesn't have a lot of foreign contacts. He doesn't have any debts that we know of. I mean, he's, he just basically owns the country. You should get a job. No, I think we could, you know, we could work that out for we you. Could work it out, Mr. Chairman. Uh, President Trump and uh, Kim Jong Un met in Hanoi last week, and the summit meeting, of course, ended you know abruptly um, with peace on the Korean Peninsula. With peace on the Korean Peninsula, exactly. As President Trump put it, uh, sometimes you just gotta walk. They got to the negotiation table and a development that I think surprised a lot of people. Uh, the Koreans sat down and said, we're ready to close the nuclear reactor at Yongbyang. And in exchange, we would like all UN sanctions lifted. Uh, and the U.S. said, well, we're not doing that. So I guess we should probably just all go home. Um, you know, Ben, it, it, this, it, 
it strikes me that there's there's not a lot in a way new and revelatory to say about this summit meeting. There seems like there was maybe a little bit of miscommunication around exactly which sanctions. It was probably basically most of them the North Koreans wanted lifted. But, you know, the idea that the Americans got to the table and did not realize what Kim Jong-un was actually going to ask for, the reason for that is that the sides weren't prepared and that they were doing this in a top-down fashion like they did the first summit and you didn't have working group uh, levels hammering out all the details so that basically 80 percent was done. Um, it just seems like it's a repeat of exactly what happened in Singapore, only they walked away this time without even a vague agreement and a signing ceremony. I think that's exactly right. And look, prep work in – this is not – should not be rocket science, but prep work in complex negotiations matters. And uh, detail in prep work also matters. And, you know, the North Korean people who are working the, – the, the U.S. people who are working the North Korea side at the staff level and uh, State Department level are serious people. So it is not – you know, and that's true at the agency too. So it is not like these are unstaffed with expertise. And so when you go to a summit – wildly unprepared, it's because you choose to. And the reason you choose to is because you actually don't care very much about the details. You care about the showmanship and making a deal and you've convinced yourself you know, that the value is you and your ability to do a deal with somebody you've developed a personal rapport with who, by the way, has probably worked uh, rather cleverly to convince you that you've developed a personal rapport with. And I thought the most interesting aspect of this was uh, the president's national security advisor, John Bolton, who was on most or all of the Sunday talk shows on Sunday uh, doing a sort of after action report. And, you know, one of the interesting things was that he could not bring himself to say that this was a sort of like in his judgment a reasonable thing to have done. What, you know, he, what he said is it's not my job to have opinions and he very conspicuously did not endorse the president's policies even as he was sort of actively saying he didn't consider the summit a failure uh, and that the president had gone and, and, and done his thing. And I think, you know, when your own national security advisor can't go on national television and affirmatively say he's, he, he believes in the policy that you're pursuing, uh, you know, that's, that's a very telling thing. I will say one thing in defense of this administration on North Korea. And, you know, the last time I said this, I antagonized Susan and I'm going to do it at risk of, of – say it again at the risk of antagonizing Susan again. But it seems to me that the Trump administration has a significant accomplishment in the North Korean space that we should not overlook. And that is that, you know, we went from an environment in January 2017 where there was testing on a, a – nuclear testing on a – and missile testing on a very regular basis to an environment in which testing is frozen. Now, development is not frozen. Production is not frozen. But testing is frozen. And tensions are somewhat de-escalated as a result of that. And how you weigh that as against the other things like the 
platform and elevation that we have delivered to Kim Jong-un, the legitimation we've done, or the uh, undermining of confidence among our allies, uh, I don't know how to evaluate. But I don't think that is an insignificant thing, given that the you know, the Obama administration was wringing its hands about those that testing. And so I do think it's a, it, it could change tomorrow. But for as long as they can actually claim correctly that the results of their policy has been a freeze on that testing, they are not without accomplishment in this area. So I don't disagree with that. I would say that it's an example of what you can accomplish when you don't care about continuing to represent or uphold basic American values, speak for human rights, hold other countries accountable, and use our engagement with them as the carrot to say, if you engage in in these practices and treat your people better and don't torture American citizens to death and don't murder people with grenade launchers and uh, chemical agents in foreign airports, then we're more inclined to come to the table. And so what we've seen in Trump's comments like he's met a lot of rich kids that are sort of screwed up, but Kim Jong-un, he turned out pretty good, I guess, by Trump's assessment. That when you jettison all of that baggage because you don't care about it at all and all you care about is sort of the transactional perception, I would argue, Trump cares more than substance, um, maybe you can get a little bit more. And that you're willing to play a kind of brinksmanship that prior administrations have not been willing to play, you know, the sort of bombastic kind of very DPRK talk about whose buttons on the desk are bigger. And, you know, and and I, I do think that they had, you know, it's worse than just that list. It's also the sort of nuclear brinksmanship that they engaged in and the president personally engaged in. That said, I don't think we can ignore the fact that there is an output here that prior administrations were striving for and had not obtained. But is the I mean, how long lasting is that going to be? I mean, the, the North Koreans could snap back to where they were six, eight months ago. It seems to me fairly easily. What's the what's the incentive for them to continue talking when the talks aren't really producing very much? Unless all they're producing for North Korea is great press back home for Kim Jong Un. Well, so which may be enough. So for, first of all, I, I, and and great press and. And pageantry and visibility on the international stage. I mean, don't underestimate, I think, the legitimation benefits that they're getting for this. And so you may end up, I mean, the functional trade here may be the, the trade they want is minimal concessions on the nuclear side for maximal concessions on sanctions. That's the North Korean vision. Our vision is maximal concessions on the nuclear stuff and then we'll re, you know we'll resolve all the sanctions stuff right but the trade that we've actually seemed to have backed into in functional terms so far is we legitimize you and we ignore as susan said all the horrible stuff and talk about you being a good guy and even pick a fight with the warm beers right and you know we treat you the way we treat vladimir putin and you don't test and 
uh, and you don't and, and how long does that last? I don't know. It lasts as I mean and and how valuable is it? I I also don't know. I find it personally disgusting, but I do think it's a tangible accomplishment or a tangible gain that they've made that I don't think we can ignore. I, I wonder though, you mentioned the Warmbier family, the parents of Otto Warmbier, the college student who was arrested under dubious circumstances in North Korea and apparently tortured to the point that he was put into a coma. I think Trump may have really stepped in it and undone maybe some of the benefits that you're describing uh, when he said publicly that he took Kim Jong-un at his word that he didn't know what happened to Otto Warmbier, which, I mean, people are used to seeing Donald Trump side with autocrats against the findings of either the intelligence community or, you know, even common sense. The idea that Kim Jong-un did not know how an American in his custody was being treated is absurd. But then the parents of Otto Warmbier, who Trump had invited to the State of the Union address and really embraced as symbols of uh, why we had to be tough on North Korea and how good he was going to be about getting hostages home, even if in the case of Otto Warmbier, he, he arrived back nearly dead and then died two days later. They came out, Susan, and basically said, how dare you? Uh, you know, and, and, and it made it look like you were just using our son as a prop, uh, that you don't really believe any of what you said, and you're willing to sacrifice Americans uh, in the service of whatever you know quixotic effort you're pursuing with Kim Jong-un, I think that really undid a lot of the whatever goodwill he may have or po political points he may have scored for himself. So I think that's right. He also had to tweet, you know, that he doesn't like being misrepresented. I think that's as close as we've seen to a Trump walk back or yeah. apology. He right. actually, he did appear to feel like he needed to clean it up. Misrepresented, look, of course, in his own words that were carried live on television. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, but look, there there is no difference between the position he's taken and believing Putin over the intelligence agencies or believing Mohammed bin Salman that he had knew nothing about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. The only difference here is that Trump had previously embraced this family publicly, right? And so and, and held North Korea directly responsible for his death. Right. And so the hypocrisy is laid bare, right? Whereas before Right. So so he doesn't appear to care about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, but he never pretended to care about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. So it's it's the ability to point back and say, you know, you were faking then. I think it confirms what a lot of people long suspected about the president, that he takes this transactional approach that he was using these people as a prop, right? He also um, uh, invited to the same State of the Union a North Korean defector um, and had him stand up, uh, you know, an individual with a sort of horrifying and very powerful personal story about the atrocities that he uh, suffered at the hands of the regime. So it's it's not a surprise for anyone who already su already suspected that of Trump, that, that he was just using these people as props. I don't really see it moving the needle on on his base, right? It's It was a little bit of a, a you know, a, a headline on Fox News that he felt bad enough about to, to need to sort of send out a tweet. But I don't see it animating his foreign policy. And, and I don't see, right, sort of any sincerity either in his about face on it or, frankly, of 
of his base sort of holding him accountable for it. And so I, I, I always hate to play that game of like, it doesn't matter to his base. It doesn't matter. Nothing will, will change their minds. But it was clear he was using this individual as a prop before. It's even clearer he's using this individual as a prop now. You know, shame on us for believing him the first time. I would just say that it falls into a, a unique, discrete category of Trump statements, which is the outrageous foreign policy-oriented statements that are about individuals at some level, right? They're the John McCain statements, the uh, Kazir Khan, uh, Jamal Khashoggi, and uh, Otto Warmbier, right? And he, I think you sort of uniquely among presidents, at least certainly that I know of, has no more filter when talking about other people and their deaths, than he does when talking about anything else. And so there's this category of Trump statements that are about the tragic deaths or suffering of individuals in ways that implicate foreign policy concerns. And I think Susan's point that all of them outrage a, a large segment of the population and they have seemed to collectively and individually have essentially no impact on his core supporters and I can't imagine why this one would be any different. Right. Um, let's move on to our next topic. I don't know how many times we've talked about the Section 215 program. But not in a long time, Shane. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's, been... like, it's like – feels like such a such a 2015 era thing to talk to. What do you think about those to? sunset provisions? Yeah. They come back around they, eventually. They come back. Uh, so listeners may remember that Section 215 of the Patriot Act, this was the portion that allowed the so-called sometimes NSA a metadata program, uh, which was ultimately exposed by Edward Snowden. And this was a program where the NSA was collecting the records of domestic phone calls, the logs, if you will, not the content of the calls, but collecting the who called who, when, how long the call lasted, the so-called metadata, and was using that information under certain circumstances to try and find connections among numbers for the purposes of locating individual terrorists and in the service of disrupting terrorist plots. Uh, so as it turns out, uh, uh, according to uh, reporting, which we can talk about a bit, uh, the NSA has not been using that program for some months, right, Susan? It essentially is kind of gone dormant, it sounds like. And now I guess there's a question about whether the administration will seek to reauthorize it. So kind of situate us in what exactly we know about where things stand. But then it seems striking to me that this program, which was so you know vocally defended uh, when it was exposed a few years ago by Snowden, now seems to be something that the NSA, I guess, is maybe willing to do without. So it's not entirely clear from the reporting what we're talking about and what elements of what's commonly known as the business records program is at issue here. But back in June of 2018, there was reporting that the NSA had purged basically all of the records that had been collected under the USA Freedom Act, which is the replacement to the 215 program. Um, so essentially, and this is really kind of some oversimplifying things, but essentially what happened under the old program was NSA collected these records itself and then stored and sort of uh, um, searched them within their own databases. So NSA sort of is, is pulling at the front end. Under the USA Freedom Act, the telecommunications providers now hold these records and make them available pursuant to a court order. 
So the intelligence community, the NSA, is still getting these records, but they now basically it's the telecommunications providers that are are pushing them and storing them, um, and, and now there's uh, there's legal process involved. So. Back in June, what the NSA said was they had discovered that on the telecommunications provider side, there had been an error. And so mm-hmm. whenever uh, what's supposed to be happening is that, let's say, they're targeting Ben, they want, they'll give Ben's phone number and then they want anybody who has been in contact with Ben, right? So this is just kind of classic social networking. Who's talked to who? So what was happening was the telecommunications providers were providing not just Ben's number, not just the numbers of people who had actually been in contact with Ben, but some other group of numbers. And we don't know where those numbers came from. It appears to just be a technical error where some other set of real American phone numbers were included on that list. So what was happening then was the agency was taking that list of numbers and using it for its own additional analysis and targeting purposes. The problem is that if it's an individual who their number is accidentally included in that list, that they haven't actually been in contact with somebody, um, that additional search becomes improper, right? There's no basis for, uh, for using that person's number. So this really is sort of a screw up on the telecommunications side, uh, telecommunications provider side. Um, I would point to it as, yes, an implementation failure, but also a compliant success. Anytime you identify a problem, report it and solve it, That's this is what we want to see happening in a, in a sort of healthy compliance ecosystem. So the NSA decided that they weren't ever going to be able to go through all the records and figure out like what were the right phone numbers and what were the wrong phone numbers and what had been derived from what. So they just said, okay, we're going to purge it all, right? So that's what we knew on the record back in June from NSA. There is now new reporting, and it's not entirely clear, sort of based on a comment that somebody made during the Lawfare podcast um, that continues to be a little bit ambiguous to me exactly what they were saying, exactly what they were talking about, that as the NSA um, and the intelligence community in general uh, come up against the the sunset provisions, so like 702, this section of the program uh, is set to sunset at the end of the year unless Congress affirmatively reauthorizes it. That as they're, uh, they're starting to have this discussion about whether or not we'll see a clean or modified reauthorization, that the agency has not been relying on the program for the past six months. So what it really sounds like is following this purge and the identification of a technical issue, the agency never restarted that collection or is in some way not relying on the fruits of that collection, maybe because they haven't solved the technical issue maybe for other reasons. So this has, of course, been sort of seized on by privacy and civil liberties advocates as well. How can you possibly say that you need this program if you didn't even need it for the past six months, right? Clearly, it's it's worthless to all of, to, to all of you. This is sort of a, a favored argument. Um, it has never made a ton of sense to me. So first of all, The overwhelming likelihood is that if intelligence is important to the intelligence community, they'll get it elsewhere. Um, And there are other legal mechanisms, right? They might be more cumbersome um, and more difficult and and, uh, uh, result in reduced collection and maybe reduced efficacy of of searching or processing. But if you really care about this information, right, you can go through other alternative ordinary warrant processes, for example. So it doesn't mean that the intelligence isn't important. It might mean that they just had to reduce down uh, sort of what they cared about in order to use like a more robust system. The other piece is that it's not as if every piece of intelligence is um, preventing the next 24 style attack, right? 
it's small pieces of evidence like in any investigation. And so the fact that you don't have that one piece doesn't mean it's impossible to do the job without it. It also means that it also doesn't mean that it's not important and it's completely irrelevant, right? More is better in in general as you're trying to understand and sort of assess threats, especially on sort of a, a rapid time frame. The other point I would make is this is information the telecommunications companies have. The question here is just about the mechanism in which they're going to provide it to the government. And so as we're having this conversation about the deeply held privacy rights of American citizens and the ability of the intelligence community to use this information for very limited, justified, and tightly controlled purposes, Verizon, AT&T, your ordinary telecommunications providers – they have all of this and can use it for whatever purposes they want to. So as we're starting to have this conversation about the uh, the privacy content of this, I do think it's worth sort of keeping in mind that this data continues to exist and be used for all kinds of purposes. The final point I would make is advocates that are seizing on the revelation now and We don't know whether or not the status of the program is classified or declassified or sort of or or where it is. I would say that it doesn't appear that the current status of the program actually bears on the protection of sources and methods. There's nothing from the outside about knowing whether or not NSA is using this particular iteration of the metadata program versus pursuing information through other lawful means that would necessarily tip an adversary about how they might act. And the idea of using classification as a means to engage or as a means to gain an advantage in a legislative debate is not the purpose of classification. And so to the extent that a lot of the newspaper reporting is well, now the NSA's hand has been tipped because now we all know that they weren't even using this program. I think the only response to that is to embrace it as that's not why information is classified in the first instance. This is not about attempting to hide from people so that they don't have this other talking point. It's about engaging it directly and explaining why the mere fact that you haven't relied on some particular program doesn't mean it doesn't have value. So, Ben, it seems like you could make an argument then that if the NSA has not been using this program for months, why did they need it in the first place? Yeah. So, I I mean, I I guess that goes to a kind of important sort of metaphysical question about government authorities, right? Which is, do you say the go- you should only give government authorities to do things that it really needs to do, and if the and if you don't have an immediate need to do something, you should take away the authority? Or do you say you should give government the authority to do the things it may reasonably need to do and it can then kind of be creative about the mix and match associated with what authorities are useful in in what ways at what point in time? And I think that's actually a really deep sort of philosophical divide between, you know, government operators on the one hand who generally take the view, hey, if it's if it's kosher for me to do this, I should have the authority to do it. And 
On the other hand, civil liberties activists who basically say you need a showing of need and utility before you convey the authority. And the general structure of U.S. intelligence authorities, mostly if you think about the 12333 authorities, uh, where they're just these kind of big broad areas where like you're allowed to do X. It doesn't say you're allowed to do X if there's a specific showing of need of, of – right? It just says here are, those, here are collection things you're allowed to do, right? And the more you get into the domestic space, the more we tend to say we need a showing of need to do X. We need a showing of specific evidentiary need before you do Y, right? And so you know these questions of sort of how you understand – the breadth of the authority in relation to need are very hard and 215 is a very specific answer for a very specific purpose. Let's also remember though, when this program was exposed by Edward Snowden back in 2013, Keith Alexander, then the director of the National Security Agency, went before Congress and the public and said how valuable it was. And when they tried to come up with cases of but for this authority in this program, we might not have disrupted a terrorist attack. Didn't that start to collapse pretty quickly? Yeah, and so this this is a program where there is a history of there, there's a history of the agency somewhat overstating its utility. Going back to you know when when it was originally authorized, you know the belief that if you didn't do this, like lots of people would die. Right. Well, were, that was belief was true about many programs, but yeah. Right, but but it was you know that was really impressed upon people with respect to the metadata program. Yeah, that's true. And then as you imposed more and more restrictions on it to make it more and more obviously legally compliant, it got less and less useful. Now, whether it was ever all that useful to begin with is a different question, but it is certainly the case that for a long time now, people have said, hey, the iteration in which we're allowed to do, it's just not that big or useful or important to program. And so there's always been the question of whether – I mean since since the Snowden revelations, there's always been the question of kind of is it worth it? And the the computer metadata, the email metadata analog to it was in fact shut down as not worth not worth the hassle of running it. So there's th- – th- this question I think is a legitimate one and it may be that they've reached the kind of point of diminishing marginal returns and said, hey, the, given the degree of hassle that we have in running this, it really isn't worth it. On the other hand, it is not clear to me that that means the right answer is to take away the authority to do something like it at some point in the future. So I think the mere fact that you have members of Congress asking, like, show us the terrorist attack that this program prevented shows the extent to which Congress doesn't understand the process of intelligence collection. And I think the error on the agency's part was not an exaggeration. It was engaging in that discussion in the first instance. They should have taken the time to do the education that, like, it's not like a movie. This isn't – this is not how it works. It's not like the one but for thing that's this big dramatic story. Like that's that's just not what the job is. And you once like. use the analogy, it's like a stew. If you take out one ingredient, it's not the same soup but it's subtly different. Right? I was going to say – use that exact example. You know, the, the lawyer always looks for what Susan just called but for causation, right? It's the person running into the room with that piece of metadata that says, I've got it. This phone call. 
called this phone at this particular time of this particular day. And everybody jumps up and they don the SWAT team outfits and they run in and, you know, blow the terrorists away, right? That's the movie version. <laughs> The lawyer in me describing that, hearing Ben describe this chain of events for the 215 program is pained, but continue. But, you know, it's actually not the way the intelligence process works. The way the intelligence process works, you grab everything you can lawfully grab. You throw it in a big pot, you know, with carrots and with potatoes and the side of beef. You stir the pot. You produce a soup. The soup either tastes good or it doesn't. It produces good outcomes or it doesn't. And you can't figure out when you taste the soup, am I tasting the carrot or the metadata, right? Am, am I looking here at the at the side of beef or is this the fruits of the, 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 the 702 system? And you don't get to disaggregate the specific role that the specific incremental piece of intelligence plays very often. Sometimes you do. Yeah, so I would just I would make the point that there is no intelligence that is so is valuable enough to justify breaking the law. So the question here is whether or not the technical systems can be brought up into compliance to the extent that the intelligence community is confident that they are not breaking the law. So the fact that the technical systems are not there right now and that the intelligence community needs more time to get them to that state doesn't mean that the law is flawed or that the intelligence is not valuable. It does mean that it is appropriate and necessary for the intelligence community to accept the hit, even if it is a significant one, if they don't believe their technical systems can reliably comply with the law. All right. Um, let's reliably comply with object lessons. Susan, you want to go first? So my object lesson is log rolling, not just a lawfare podcast, but my prior object lesson like a meta object lesson, yeah, which comes, is last it's a two week. Meta log rolling. <laughs> last week, my object lesson was my upcoming conversation <laughs> with FBI Director Chris Ray. This week, my object lesson is my past conversation, which I had yesterday with Time FBI Director Ray, circle. which we have turned into a lawfare short. So you can listen to um, what I thought was a really interesting uh, conversation about how he thinks about cyber threats and all kinds of other stuff. All right. Ben. So Tammy is in Iraq, in, in Iraqi Kurdistan, but she has left, left us all a present. It is a Robert Mueller devotional panel. <laughs> and, and it is amazing. I'm not honestly sure why she bought this for me, um, but uh, uh, I am touched by it. And um, I'm going to put a link on the show page to where you can get your own Robert M Mueller devotional candle. And it. Um, what are you praying for when you light it? Like you know, I don't know. It even has sequins on it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's pretty it, fabulous. It's pretty fabulous. I don't think he would approve at all. I don't either. But I'm not sure the makers of the Robert Mueller devotional candle were seeking his approval. They may have been seeking blessings from him, I, but not of the sort that he bestows I think this is uh, with what, approval. What you light until the report comes out. Exactly. You're praying for the contents you're praying of the report? praying for the contents. Uh, I don't know. But anyway, the restful repose of exactly. the report. It is fabulous. <laughs> and uh, so if you guys, if what's missing from your life is a Robert Mueller devotional candle. Um, you need to think about your life and your choices. <laughs> and you can access uh, it from uh, from. Uh, through uh, we 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 are not selling the Robert Mueller devotional candle, of course, but I will provide a link for those who 
for whatever reason, need one. Absolutely. Uh, and I'll just close with an object. Uh, I'm actually going to uh, recommend, if you haven't checked it out yet, uh, Jane Mayer's piece in the current edition of The New Yorker uh, about Fox News. And why is another story about Fox News, you ask, worth your time? Um, she has a very uh, provocative and quite persuasive argument uh, to essentially say that portions of Fox News, largely the sort of the Sean Hannity in the evening programming and the Fox and Friends program in the morning have, as she's put it, become a state propaganda network in service of Trump, uh, which is a really interesting argument. And there's a lot of juicy stuff to read there. But I think listeners of the podcast will be interested because she spends a fair amount of time and I think, again, quite persuasively demonstrating how it appears that the producers and hosts of Fox News may be having more influence over the president's national security and foreign policy decision making than his cabinet is. Uh, and it's it's a pretty uh, arresting uh, narrative, and uh, I think people will find something to be provoked about and curl up with it when you go to sleep and sleep well. It's a great piece. But that brings us to the end of the podcast, you guys. That's sad. <laughs> Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on lawfareblog.com. You can get your merch. I bought a bunch of merch last week, by the Did way. You? You're not wearing it. I'm not wearing it. I got a T-shirt. I got a hat. It's called a dad cap, by the way. And Shane is a model for you all, and you should all imitate him in all things. Just listen to the words he's going to say and then be like Shane. Get a hoodie. We got two shirts in my house. We have a bunch of stuff coming. It's very, very exciting. I'll bring, maybe I'll bring the dad cap next week, as long as we promise not to call it a dad cap. What makes it a dad cap? Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave a five-star rating and review. We really appreciate it. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. This podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Jared Kushner and his John Philip Sousa ska tribute band, The Lawful But Awfuls. That's good. What? That's good. Can you think of anything worse? <laughs> <laughs> John Philip Sousa's ska is pretty bad. bad. I like it. I yeah. like the lawful but yeah. awful. Sophia Yam probably knows some good John Philip Sousa marches that she could play on the piano. Doesn't quite translate. On behalf of my friends, Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy and Tammy, wherever you are. In Sulemania. I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.